what's going to happen is I'm going to speak for about uh, 10 or 12 minutes on the theology of grace and refer to grace in pastoral care. And then Mary is going to speak for the plurality of the time on grace in personal relationships. And then I will sort of wrap it up at the end and try to sum it up, and we'll be finished in good time. I'd like to begin with a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer that was written by Thomas Cranmer before he was burned at the stake. And it's, um, it's a perfect statement of the Christian gospel. It is the purest mockingbird expression of how the demand of the law through grace becomes the response of the heart, how the demand of the law, which is impossible to fulfill on its own terms, becomes the will and volition of the heart spontaneously, which is the great mystery and the great power of the gospel. And this is the collect for the fourth Sunday after Easter. It's 500 years old, and in the new prayer book, it's one of the collects in Lent, collect being the old um, Episcopal version for a shared prayer spoken by the officiant. And uh, as we're seated, let us pray. O Almighty God, who alone canst order the unruly wills and affections of sinful men and women, grant unto thy people that we may love the thing which thou commandest and desire that which thou dost promise, that so among the sundry and manifold changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, that is a colic that is worth being emblazoned on every conceivable um, position where you might um, find it. And um, the, uh, the whole question of grace in personal relationships has to begin with um, the problem, the problem of being human. What David Zoll refers really very brilliantly as low anthropology a proper understanding of human nature. And if your understanding of human nature is inaccurate, everything else collapses. Nothing will work if your understanding of human nature is inaccurate or partially but not wholly observed. And so the beginning of all this is the um, understanding that human nature is universally unchangeable across all lines, all identities, all possible groupings, that human nature is unchangeable in its paralysis and its inability to observe or do what it knows it ought to do. Um, John Galsworthy, who is really worth study, 
was the first Englishman to ever win the Nobel Prize in Literature. And in 1932, he gave his speech to the Nobel Prize Academy. Unfortunately, he died before he could give it. But in his speech for the Nobel Prize in Literature, Galsworthy gave a talk that was almost as powerful as William Faulkner's 30 years later because he referred in his speech, the novelist John Galsworthy, to what he called the glacial character of change in human nature. The glacial speed with which human nature changes. In other words, it doesn't change. This is not fun. I don't like it. It oughtn't to be true. But human nature is such that Houston, we have a problem. And Houston, we cannot solve it. Not only is the problem of human nature insoluble on its own terms, there is no way to solve it on its own terms. We try in a million ways, but the same repetitive, compulsive, returning attributes, misfirings, and false understandings continue to bind you forever, seemingly. Uh, you were, we talked about last night in his rather brilliant discussion of marriage that you're married to someone, it's highly unlikely that person is going to change. It's going to suddenly wake up and be better. Now, what, so, so are you with me? We, we, you may not be with me. I want to read um, a perfect statement of this, also from the Reformation. Article 9 of the 39 Articles, they are the confession of faith in the uh, Anglican understanding and they were written uh, right at the time of the accession of Queen Elizabeth and uh, the first. And this is Article 9, entitled, Of Original or Birth Sin. Original sin is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit. And therefore, in every person ever born into this world, it deserves God's wrath and damnation. And this infection of nature doth remain yea, in them that are regenerate. In other words, not only do we have a, 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 a corruption and fault in our very being that is uh, genetic, but it remains even uh, in Christians. And this, as you know, is the, is the great fault of the Christian churches. They somehow come to the idea that um, once you're saved, you're no longer subject to the power of your own inherent remaining human nature. So you're very angry or very surprised and very undone when a person who's a devout Christian turns out to be an impossible person even then. Or they have a regression, a compulsive regression. They get better for five years and then they collapse in paralyzed um, bondage of the will. So the first point of this short introduction to Mary 
is that we're Houston, we have a problem. It is inherent, and we cannot solve it. The second point is that only one-way love from outside ourselves is sufficient to solve it. In other words, it goes like this. If I tell you what you ought to do from the Word of God, what is right and good, and I tell you that, you will not only find it impossible to agree with me in practice, but something inside you will rebel against it. I don't care if you're the most wonderful person in the world. If you tell me, Paul, I'm just wanting to speak the truth to you in love tonight, but until you stop doing this, da-da-da-da-da-da, inevitably what happens? I will never talk to that person again, ever. And he brought it up. Remember, what was the reaction from the Presbyterian minister? I know the church, by the way, where that happened last night. His, what was his desire? I will never go to that church again. Because our human nature is wired to resist the law on its own terms. We simply cannot and will not do what we are instructed to do, even when it was what God would have us do. Now, you may not agree, but I sense a general tone of acquiescence in your eyes as I look deep into your eyes. Um, and this is um, absolutely powerful because when you are loved on your own terms, especially in your terrible times, when you really are in front of your face, falling on your face, and capable of all kind of willfulness and malice and actings out, if someone actually forgives you, you know, neither do I condemn thee, what happens? And a miracle happens. You actually start, you're so touched that instead of using that as an excuse to do more, I mean, unless you're an axe murderer or you're psychopathic, but in 99% of the cases, when you are loved and forgiven in your paralysis, in what Luther called the bondage of the will, it's a miracle happens. You actually can begin to act freely, and you end up doing the very thing which the law required, which you had previously stiff-armed until it was brought to you in the voice of forgiveness. And this was the great and eternal secret of the ministry of Christ Jesus. And that's why in Romans 10:4, what did he say? Christ is the end of the law. He didn't say Christ is the end of the law with certain exceptions. Christ is the end of the law, i.e., as the change agent to make you the person whom God truly wants to make you. Grace is the only dynamic that somehow starts an engine inside you of voluntary loving. And I believe me, everyone here, I don't want to sound like everyone, maybe there are a few people here who understand this. Because when you were at a low ebb, and this is why older men generally marry their nurses. <laughs> I mean, widowers. I mean, I've had 50 years of pastoral experience. The number of widowers who in their 80s married their nurses is roughly 85%. <clears throat> because the nurse cleaned him up. The nurse was not put off by his wrinkles by his bellowing. In fact, somehow the nurse was given to love this old gentleman in a way that communicated deep forgiveness of all the off-putting elements. And what do you immediately want to do? 
I want to marry you. Like that. Like that. My wife did a very special thing for me once. I was in the naval service, and she gave me a ride a hundred miles when I desperately needed to get back to the naval base before getting cashed in because I had spent too much time on the weekend and I was desperately afraid I'd lose my privileges at the naval officers candidate school and out of the blue I didn't know her it wasn't dating her I said any chance I think she offered she said oh I'll give you a lift what was my answer inside myself I want to marry you just like that <laughs> Uh, women get very nervous when men immediately respond like that, but that's all you need to do. If you want to marry a guy, do something really nice for him that really helps him, and he will instantly write you a letter. He'll be drunk, but he'll write you a letter. I want to marry you. So are you with me? Point one was that Houston, we have a problem. Point two is that um, the problem is solved, but by the opposite of what you think will solve it. The problem is solved by forgiveness, compassion, empathy, and total mercy, which in fact engenders the very thing which the law was trying to make you do. And this is the great uh, secret of a happy marriage. It's the great secret of an abiding friendship. And it's also the curse of all dissolved relationships. Now the last thing I'm going to say before Mary comes up here is that um, I'm going to give you two examples in pastoral care of how I learned this. I learned this by accident. And then later on, I was with a man who had the theology to give me words for what I learned. A chap came to me named George 50 years ago. And he was um, 40 years ago. And he was, I was going to marry him at this beautiful old church in New York City on Saturday. And his wife, his fiance, called me desperate on Thursday. She said, we're having terrible problems. You've got to speak to George. So George unwillingly came to speak to the man who was going to marry him in two days. And um, what he told me was that he was a typical New York 35-year-old guy who was having commitment anxiety. And he had decided to not get married. And he told his fiance, I just can't go through with it. And he came to me. And then he said, what should I do? Now, that particular day, I was really distracted. I had something else in my mind. I think I was hungry. And I was, I was something else had happened in the church that was first and foremost on my mind. And I forgot what he was saying. So when he said, what do you think I should do? I had not listened to the situation to which he was asking me for a response. And I had no idea what he had said because I'd been so distracted. That ever happened to you? You, just, you seem like, yes, 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 but you're actually thinking about something that you have to do in an hour or some person that you have a grudge against who you have to see in 45 minutes. And I suddenly realized I didn't know what he had asked. So I said, well, George, let the conversation continue. That's what I was given to say, those exact words. Let the conversation continue. It wasn't the law, you ought to do this, don't you see you're going to let down her, don't you see all the people that are going to be upset? I simply said, let the conversation continue. And he said, yeah, wow. And then he left. <laughs> and an hour later, his fiance called on the phone. What did you do? He's a changed man. He came back saying, I can't wait to marry you in two days, and they were married, they're still married, and we've known them intimately ever since. How did I discover what grace was? By accident. 
because I should have said, well, you have better go through with this. Think of all the people you'll hurt. I said, let the conversation continue. Totally ridiculous. But I learned, I learned, don't give advice, especially if people ask you, hey, I need your advice. Never fall for that one because they're going to use your advice as an excuse to do the thing they've already decided to do, but they feel guilty about it. Now, I'll give you one more example, and then over to Mary. I, we did a lot of abortion. This is a little heavy example, but it's really not heavy because it's a deeper principle. We did a lot of abortion counseling in uh, our New York parish, and young women would come to me because I was sort of at the age of many of our young parishioners, and this uh, woman came to me once, and she was contemplating an abortion, and um, as a person who is, theologically speaking, pro-life, I sort of tried lovingly to talk her out of it. She said, I, I have a, I'm pregnant, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm not sure. I, have, I, I sort of would sort of like to go through an abortion, but I wondered what you think, Paul. And I sort of told her what I thought. What do you think happened? She was actually already on her way to the abortion clinic. She had come to me to confirm how guilty she already felt, because sometimes people want to be confirmed in their bad feelings. And I fell for it. And I not only sped up her determination to get the abortion, but I, at lightning speed, when I said she shouldn't do it because of the nature of who I was as a clergyman and God, she went and got the abortion. And what do you think? Did we ever see her again in the church? Never. I happen to know what happened, but I never saw her again. So the next time this happened, three months later, a lady named Giselle came. We knew her very well. And Giselle had the same uh, situation. She wanted to know what I thought. She was a devout Christian, just as the other one was. And she wanted to know what I felt. And I said, um, she said, what should I do? And I said, nothing. Even though I had feelings, I said nothing. And I said, well, you know, this is between you and God. I, I, I feel sure you'll find the, the right answer. I later found out within 24 hours that she canceled her appointment at the abortion clinic to which she was headed. She did not get the abortion. She later on gave up the child for adoption, and she remained a very faithful and active member of our church forever and ever. But you see how I learned it? I learned the first by being distracted, and I learned the second by having completely blown it with goodwill with the first person. So pastoral care... Grace, the silence of empathy, Jesus said nothing to the woman taken in adultery except dismissed all her detractors, and then he promised her that she would sin no more, and that's what happened. Now Mary is going to pick it up now with this principle of one-way love in personal relationships, and then I'll finish with a word at the end.